Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from my panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Norma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And today's program is Triple Negative Breast Cancer and the Theory of Recurrence. And this is part two of a three-part series, um, and the series is called Living with Triple Negative Breast Cancer. This topic is one that has come up a number of times. Many of you have asked us to do this topic um, on our programs, and um, it's a topic that's really, um, the theory of recurrence is an issue that comes up with every type of cancer, and we're we're really, um, we really want to address this fully today, so we have wonderful speakers on our program today. Today's program is also a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, and um, and a number of other both breast cancer organizations as well as um, cancer organizations and um, in general. Um, and I want to say the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation has been most generous in supporting this program, this entire series, and our helpline. You'll hear more about that throughout the program. Um, so that. Um, Today's program we have, so because of all this promotion of the program and also your interest in the topic, we have over 469 participants on the program today. So there are a lot of you on the call today, and you come from all over the United States. So you come from rural, from urban, from suburban, and from frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Austria, Canada, Denmark, India, Israel, and the United Kingdom. So it's a global call as well. Today's program is made possible by the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, the Celgene Corporation, and a grant from Genentech. And I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Lydia Shapira. Dr. Shapira is a, an oncologist, and she is a breast oncologist. She is Associate Professor of Medicine, Stanford University School of Medicine, Director, Cancer Survivorship Program, Stanford Cancer Institute. And Dr. Shapiro will be addressing understanding the treatment of triple negative breast cancer, making informed treatment choices, and organizing your follow-up care. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Shapira. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner, for the opportunity to participate, and uh, good afternoon to you all. Um, the topic today is really living with and beyond triple negative breast cancer. So. Let's start with a very quick reminder to orient us to the specific of this particular disease. Triple negative breast cancer has both local and systemic therapies. The local therapies are pretty similar to those for other kinds of breast cancer, and they involve different modalities of surgery and radiation therapy. But the systemic approach to triple negative breast cancer, and by that I mean the treatments and medications that are given in general, to prevent the spread or to control the spread of cancer are slightly different than other kinds of breast cancer. And that is because triple negative typically starts by saying that this particular form of cancer does not have the target for hormonal therapies and does not have the target for certain oncogenes such as the HER2 protein. So triple negative basically relies on chemotherapy and novel therapies such as immunotherapy that we have just recently started to learn more about. There is a lot of research ongoing in identifying specific targets for this kind of cancer, and there's a tremendous amount of innovation and progress available through clinical trials. And I take this opportunity to remind you that when you are thinking about treatment or with thinking about innovation and cutting-edge treatments that are available through clinical trials may afford more options than what you may find among the standard therapies. So that brings me really to the more general and philosophical perspective, which is how do you find the right team and how do you know that you're making a good treatment choice? There are many personal factors, such as the proximity of a certain location to where you live, whether you have a connection to a certain cancer center, 
But as you think through what where you might want to get treated, I think it's really important to make sure that the treatment team that you trust and work with really has expertise in handling triple negative breast cancer. And then there are very important decisions that also need to be made to establish really a collaborative approach. Over many years of treating patients with breast cancer, what I've learned and heard over and over is how important it is for the individual person who is a patient and who's a survivor to feel that he or she is known to the clinicians, that they have an easy access to each other, that they they almost enjoy each other's company. So as you are putting together a team or choosing whether or not to have a second or third opinion, I think it's really important to feel that there is a collaborative approach to treatment and that different members of the clinical team are identified and that you feel comfortable understanding what their role is in the team. There may be a nurse, nurse practitioner, psychologist, social worker, in addition to your oncologist, who may play a fundamental role in answering your questions, providing support, leading you to the proper resources, and helping you manage many of the other life and lifestyle factors that probably will be disrupted by living with triple negative breast cancer. So during treatment, it's really important to find such supports, but even after treatment has been completed, it's very important to continue to find sources of support and connection. And that's really interesting um, as we think about it because we often don't quite know how to even reach for or identify our sources of support. Um, Increasingly, what I hear from my patients is they're turning to support groups that are live support groups, but also online support groups and communities. And it's important to understand that these may also provide both information about the disease itself and treatment options, but also mechanisms for sharing experiences and obtaining and giving support. So how does anybody know that they're making a good decision? I think that this is a really interesting and complex issue and one that needs to be considered. I think it's important to start with the very basic idea that um, any person who has a disease, be it cancer or any other disease, has a right to have information that is of high quality, and that means information that has been vetted by experts and then has an opportunity to ask questions and then perhaps need some time to deliberate and think about trade-offs. You know, perhaps one treatment sounds very attractive from one perspective, but it may require or involve more active participation or may expose you to more risks than you really want to take. So I think making a good decision, one that you will hopefully not regret in the future, involves really thinking about what is important to you, what matters to you, what's best for you, and having the opportunity to really deliberate and think about um, what your options are, even the options perhaps of not having treatment. That brings me also to the idea that there's a point when you need to move on and um, after treatment is completed or during treatment breaks, also find a path back to normal and to normal medical care. Involving primary care doctors along the treatment continuum is something that we are uh, very um, cognizant of as a strategy to really help build a supportive team around the patient. And it's it's the reality that many uh, many of us have more than one illness. So it's important to have somebody who really understands the whole picture of health and who's provided guidance and who really will help manage health moving forward. So a collaborative approach with your primary care physician or GP and uh, some good coordination and communication with the oncology team is really important. So I think that uh, living with triple negative breast cancer and living well with triple negative breast cancer requires really a multi-pronged approach, understanding the disease, understanding treatment options, building a good team, having good communication with the team, retaining and maintaining a good connection to your generalist or primary care physician, having a lot of support, understanding where the resources are, 
and thinking about ways of still carving out moments of total normal life, even if cancer is a concern. Many patients and cancer survivors have recurring thoughts and worries about what will happen if the cancer comes back, and that's something that my colleague, Dr. Rowland, will address following this uh, presentation. And I just want to remind you that that's quite normal as well, and that it's important really to even anticipate that that could happen and find some good strategies for knowing how to deal with it. So with this, I'll turn it back to you, Dr. Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Shapiro. That was just a wonderful introduction to the call, setting the stage for the program, and just, just wonderful. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Julie Rowland. Dr. Rowland is Senior Strategic Advisor, Smith Center for Healing and the Arts. And Dr. Rowland is going to be addressing fear of recurrence, concerns that cancer may come back, events that may trigger fear of recurrence, and balancing reality with stress management tips. I also want to just say that for many, many years, Dr. Rowland, um, directed the Cancer Survivorship Program at the National Cancer Institute. She comes with a hu- huge background of um, expertise, and we're delighted to have her on the call. So um, I'm now going to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rowland. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, for that lovely introduction. And uh, let me add my welcome to all of you who are on the call this afternoon, listening in to find out more information about how to manage and thrive following the diagnosis of triple negative breast cancer. As Dr. Mesner and also Dr. Shapiro said, I'm going to talk about one of the most common sequelae or consequences of having a diagnosis and going through treatment for cancer, and that is worry that the cancer will come back. And I thought I would address this by basically putting out the most common questions that are asked. And of course, the most common is, well, well, how frequently does this happen? As Dr. Shapiro alluded, it's very common. In fact, one could argue it's the most normal response of individuals, and it is the rare individual who never thinks about this at any point in the course of their care. Some people worry a lot. Some people worry very little. But most people worry some, and it may vary at different points in time. So you might ask, well, do these feelings ever go away, those anxious thoughts? And the answer is many of us have been told from large populations of individuals who've had cancer, breast cancer in particular, the worry tends to diminish over time, but it may not go away altogether. So if you're thinking that you need to banish this forever from your mind, that may be a steep challenge for most. Can you put it someplace where you can... Forget about it most of the time, absolutely, and it can be effectively managed, which is going to be the theme that you hear throughout this conversation this afternoon. Is there a group of individuals who are more likely to worry about this, and why might be that, that be the case? Clearly, individuals who have more difficult disease to treat, where there are fewer treatment options available, it's a harder challenge. There's more worry that maybe it won't work. Fortunately, we have a number of good treatments for triple negative breast cancer, even though it's not a target, as Dr. Shapiro said, for some hormonal therapies or genetically targeted therapies. There are many treatments that are very effective in this disease. We know that if you've had a recurrence before or some other kind of cancer, you may worry more. If you have someone in your family who's had this illness, you may worry more. And it's important to know what the doctors said about your risk for recurrence, which we'll come back to in a little bit. Your personal beliefs about whether you're at high risk or not are going to influence whether you're anxious about it. Where you are in your life course makes a difference, too. If you're very young when you're diagnosed, it's understandable that you worry that you have many more things you might lose out on should this disease come back or advance. And clearly, when you get anxious, you're going to worry more, whether it's anxious over something unrelated or it's anxious about something you believe happening to yourself with regard to the illness. And finally, those around you can influence how you feel. If your family is wringing their hands or your friends look at you like you're doomed in some way, you may feel more anxious even though your expected outcome is excellent. So these are all things to keep in mind if you're feeling anxious and finding yourself worrying. And what contribute to feelings of concern or anxiety? 
there are a number of these, and they occur in, across the trajectory of illness. Some people think this only comes up after treatment that you worry about coming, it's coming back. But actually, individuals who are in the middle of treatment may have a sense of this. So during treatment, if there's a change in treatments, even if it's entirely appropriate that you need to delay some treatments or you have a particularly fierce response to one of the medications, so you might change a dose or change how often it's received, entirely appropriate because treatments need to be tailored to individuals. It may cause anxiety that something, however, is wrong. If you have an unexpected side effect, Let's say in the small print it says you could have a particular kind of a pain syndrome or develop shingles, and you develop that, but that wasn't something anybody told you to worry about. That may be upsetting. Conversely, if you don't have an expected side effect, all your hair doesn't fall out if you receive chemotherapy and you're expecting it to, you may worry maybe the drug's not working. And finally and interestingly, one we often ill-prepare individuals for, and that's finishing treatment. So why should finishing treatment cause anxiety? Well, of course, first and foremost is worry that the cancer will come back now that treatment has stopped, that you're not, quote-unquote, actively doing something about the illness. And that may be more challenging for individuals with triple negative breast cancer where they're not additional adjuvant options like hormonal therapies or the genetically targeted therapies. So you may feel you're doing nothing when that's not entirely the case. There's also concern about, well, who's going to monitor me? I've been being seen regularly in the clinic. I know my physician or my nurse or my fellow. I know who to call if some ache or pain comes up. Who am I going to call now? And all of those wonderful people who've been supportive for weeks on end perhaps I'm losing my support environment. And by the way, I feel kind of worse now than I did when I started this whole journey. So all of those cumulative effects may have caught up with you as you're finishing treatment. And finally, family and friends are ready for you to be through this experience, and they want to say, good, you're done. Let's go back to life as it was before. And you may find yourself struggling to say, what was life before? Can I get back to that? What is this, quote, new normal that I've got to live with? So understandably, anxiety may increase at the end of treatment, even if there's celebration that goes with it. And then after treatment, more common anxiety or triggers to anxiety come up. Probably the key among these is routine follow-up visits, where many say that or anniversary dates of events or suspicious symptoms come up. Don't be surprised if you feel anxious. Death of a follow-up traveler. If you read in the paper about somebody else who's not survived their treatment, you may worry about your own. Times of stress, as I've noticed before, and some kind of Sometimes people have what we call idiosyncratic triggers. Maybe just driving by the hospital where you were treated before will cause you anxious. So if I'm worrying, do I need to worry about fear on my health? Actually, most people, as I said before, worry some about their cancer. The only two times that clinicians become concerned are individuals, interestingly, who never worry. And the reason we worry about those who never worry is that we are concerned that maybe they won't come back for their follow-up appointments, which Dr. Shapiro said are very important. They're wellness and health visits that are important to outcomes. And on the flip side, people who worry all the time, we worry about those individuals because they may be having lots of doctor visits all the time or monitoring themselves all the time and become chronically stressed by that, and that's not good. So those two extremes, and I would say they're more often extremes, but they're things we can do about it. If you're very anxious, talk to somebody because it may be helpful to find ways to manage your stress. Is worry about cancer coming back something that just affects cancer survivors? The answer is no, because cancer occurs to individuals in a community, in a family setting, in a social setting. You may find you're doing fine, and those around you are anxious all the time. And that's not surprising. Maybe they need to talk to someone and realize that actually you're doing fine, a little bit of anxiety is fine, and they need to get theirs under control. And then perhaps the most important is what can you do about your fears? What can you do about worry? First and foremost, you can do some physical things for yourself. 
good physical self-care, again, as Dr. Shapiro emphasized, is really important. Having those regular examinations as recommended by your cancer physicians, exercising, eating a balanced diet, decreasing alcohol, tobacco, and sun exposure, all the smart things we should be doing for our health anyway. When symptoms arise, you know to call your doctors or nurses or the person that has been designated as the person who's going to respond to that. Importantly, a lot of people overemphasize their risk of, of recurrence. It's good to have that conversation to say, what is your actual risk? You may be surprised. It's a lot less than you thought. And there are a number of emotional and cognitive ways to think about illness that Dr. Hurley's going to talk about next to help you manage the anxiety of fear of recurrence. Most important take-home from all of this that I've shared is that this is something that's very common and is very manageable. You just need to identify it for yourself, and if you need it, ask for help. I'm going to turn now back to Dr. Mesner to introduce our next speaker. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Rowland. That was really, really so helpful to everyone, and thank you for your, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Karen Hurley, and uh, Dr. Dr. Hurley is a psychologist, um, Hereditary Cancer Risk Center for Behavioral Health, clinical member, Cancer Prevention, Control, and Population Research Program, Case Comprehensive Cancer Center, Cleveland Clinic. And Dr. Hurley is going to be addressing confronting continuing uncertainty, tips for coping with fear of recurrence, and using mind-body techniques to cope with fear of recurrence. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Hurley. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner, for that warm welcome. And I also want to extend a welcome to all the people far and wide who have called in. So I want to pick up the, um, the thread and uh, that uh, Drs. Shapira and Roland have uh, introduced so beautifully. And I want to focus a little more on the experience of the anxiety in the moment and really being in that, that having that, that, that chill or that, that you know that racing thoughts that happen, and and what is it like to be right in the middle of it? Um, as we've already talked about, fear of recurrence is one of the most common concerns of cancer survivors, and I would extend that to people who are living with metastatic disease who are worrying about progression. That everything I'm going to say, uh, or almost all of it, will apply to you as well. Uh, so first of all, we're concerned about fear of recurrence because it can affect your quality of life, such as your sleep. So if you're already struggling with fatigue and then worries are keeping you up at night, that's going to sort of degrade your your um, your physical health. Um, it may affect your ability to interpret sy symptoms. So if you're having um, a twinge and you can't tell, well, is that something I need to go to the doctor for or, uh, you know, can I let that be? Um, it can be hard to accept reassurance when somebody does a screening test for you and says, hey, it doesn't look like we see anything, but there still might be that niggling thought that something's there. And also, it can be really hard to be present and engage with people and with the activities that give your life meaning if somewhere you're off in your head somewhere worrying about the uh, the possibility of cancer. So it's really important to help you bring you back into the present, your present state of health right now so that you can focus on the things that are important to you. So you may have already figured out, if you've had fears of recurrence, that these fears are not easily dismissed by simple reassurance or logic. So if someone tries to tell you you'll probably be fine, you might have already heard something, you know, you might have already been told, hey, you know, we see something, it's probably nothing, but then it turned out to be something. If you've been through that once, it's hard to take the reassurance that now you're probably okay. Um, somebody might uh, quote numbers and say the chances are low that you will have a recurrence, but then you may have already had that experience just by virtue of being a cancer survivor that when somebody gives you a number of one out of something, whether it's one in two, one in 12, one in 100, sometimes you are that one, right? And so if somebody suggests, well, you can just put it out of your head, of course, if it were easy, you would be able to do that. But 
distraction, you know, trying to take your mind off it only works for uh, a short amount of time, but it doesn't really let you process the experience of how cancer has touched your life and maybe even changed you. So the struggle with fear of recurrence, I think, reflects a larger struggle of processing what it has been like to go through cancer. So it's almost like if cancer is the earthquake, the fear of recurrence is like the aftershocks. So there's that shock of diagnosis itself, the intensity of the treatment and how much time and uh, it took from your life and, and all of the symptoms that you've had to deal with, life goals that have been altered or changed uh, because of going through this experience. Maybe you're worried that you won't be able to get back on track or if you're just starting to uh, connect with life goals again, that you're going to be knocked off track again. Um, you may be starting to really process ways in which your body has changed and some some things you'll recover and maybe some things aren't going to change back and the same with some of your relationships. So when you're going through treatment itself, a lot of people go into what I call battle mind, you know, where you're just like, okay, just tell me what to do. We're going to plow through this and you get to the end of the treatment. And that's when some of the feelings start to come, kick in. So maybe there's some deferred anxiety from uh, that you were kind of pushing to the side while you're trying to concentrate on putting one foot in front of the other. So now, as you come out of battle mind, what is it like to start to relax that vigilance, to start to stand down a little bit and go back into a, quote, civilian life? So really one of the things that happens when you go through cancer and you go through all of these disruptions is that it shows us the fragility of our future. You know, we make plans, we have dreams, we say, hey, see you tomorrow, when in fact if you really stop to think about it, we always have to put a little asterisk because we we don't actually know for a fact that you're going to see somebody tomorrow. And that's and that's a painful realization. We don't think that way all the time. It would be very hard to walk around in your daily life doing that. But going through cancer kind of kind of takes away some of the, um, the, the protections that we have against that harsh reality. So in that sense, thinking about the existential reality that's been exposed by cancer, um, is similar to other fears that we have. You know, if you think about common phobias, such as heights, spiders, snakes, these are all things that are appropriate to be somewhat afraid of because, you know, it affects our uh, survival. Uh, so it's not so much making the fear go away, but having it in proper proportion so that you can function. Now, if you've ever had a friend who was afraid of heights and you tried to argue them out of it or convince them logically that there was nothing to be afraid of, it doesn't work, right? So we need to reach the nonverbal part of the brain, the part that um, is uh, uh, just sending out these waves of, of feeling uh, to uh, try to deal with the um, the fear and get it back into a realistic proportion that helps you live your life well. So what are some ways that we can do that? How can we restore a sense of balance and proportion so that the reality that cancer does sometimes come back is neither bigger nor smaller than it is? So one is something our brains do naturally, which is refocusing. If you've ever seen those gestalt figures where um, – you know, there's a figure that looks like either an old woman or a young lady, or it's uh, either two vases or a single face. Um, so that's, um, you know, our brains naturally focus from foreground to background. We can shift perspective. So being able to shift away from that fear of recurrence back into the present is taking advantage of that gestalt principle in our brain that we do anyway. Another thing I've been using with patients is what I call the color spot meditation. So it's nothing you don't, you don't have to train for. You just think about um, pick a favorite color that feels calming to you. And whenever you have a thought that feels like it's taking you away from a calm place, is to guide your thought gently back 
into that color spot and let it dissolve into the color. Now, you don't want to yank your thoughts back. The gentleness of bringing your thought back into the color spot is an important part of the process because we need compassion for understanding the fact that that fear of recurrence is bringing up against the question of what do we have control over and what we don't have control over. There are definitely things you can do to to influence your um, chances of recurrence, like exercise and diet and some of the other things that my colleagues have mentioned, but no one can guarantee you 100% that they're going to work. And so dealing with you know that that reality and saying that you've done your best possible uh is is very important i've seen people become perfectionistic that you know if they don't you know if they stray off of you know eating broccoli and doing uh organic diet you know even one day that somehow they'll flunk their survivors excuse me flunk their survivorship and uh, and then their fear of recurrence is almost like this fear that they're going to be punished by having a recurrence um, people also get fearful of their own fear, like they have a, a lack of control over feelings, like why can't I get rid of this fear? Or people even will worry that being fearful will actually cause the cancer to come back. Now, I used to live in New York City, and that's where I practiced for a long time, and I would say to people, and I didn't don't mean it in a flippant way, but, you know, if stress if it was that easy to for stress to make people have cancer, everybody in New York City would have cancer. So what that means is that we don't really know uh, that, you know, it's not that easy for stress to push someone into cancer. So we don't want to live in fear of having our own feelings. So if you think about being fearful that having a negative thought is going to bring about a recurrence, that's living in fear. If you think about having compassion towards that fearful thought, then you're in a state of compassion. So some of these things, you know, I've been talking about are quite stressful. And, and you know, it's difficult to think about the fragility of um, our life plans and, and thinking about lack of control or the limits of control. So in terms of seeking social support, it's really important to have at least one person that you can say anything to without feeling judged. Um, Now, some people naturally have big social uh, support networks. Some people just have a few close friends, but that's what you're looking. You need at least that one person who can do that for you. Sometimes people hold themselves back. They don't want to worry others. They're the rock that everyone else depends on. Or you have maybe you've got someone close to you who minimizes your feelings or um, avoids talking with you. So if you're in either of those situations, you might wind up feeling a little more isolated, which can make fears of recurrence get bigger. So uh, you want to seek out who who your confidant can be, and you, it's okay to be a little picky about who do you seek support from. Another important principle is not going to the hardware store for oranges. And that means some people are naturally good listeners and some people don't really have it to give. So, uh, you know, maybe you want an orange, but all they're selling is hardware. So you want to uh, gravitate towards the people who seemed receptive to what you um, what you need to share. So in closing, for my part, I'd like to say, that you know when we think about recovery sometimes people will talk about putting things behind you but that can set up an expectation that your um that any feelings you have means that it's a setback or that you're not progressing in your survivorship but rather if cancer becomes something of you it's part of your experience but not all of it that gives you the room to hold these feelings of fear and to tend to them compassionately. So living with compassion for your the experiences you had, it's not always easy or pretty uh, to think about the ways in which cancer has affected your life, and it's not always easy to think about not having control because none of us had a say in how the rules of existence are written. But what we do have is this power to define what makes our life good now with our bodies as they are, 
so that a good day is always within reach. In that sense, that will that sense of power that you can define your quality of life today brings your mind naturally into the present, and it lets what might be coming drift back into the future so that you can give it attention in its due time with that same calm and compassion you're cultivating today, that that will always be with you. And so with that, I'd like to turn back to our host and to the next speaker. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Hurley. That was really ex- ex- really excellent and outstanding, and I think there will be lots of questions for you during the Q&A. Um, actually, there's some questions coming in already, so there we have it. So, um, and, um, so um, our next speaker is um, Haley Dinnerman, and um, Ms. Dinnerman is a lawyer, and she's co-founder and executive director of the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, and I have to say that um, the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation has been a, a huge supporter of both these education workshops, but also of our helpline. And um, the next speaker will talk more about the, the details of the helpline, but I just want to thank Ms. Gentleman for really um, having the foresight to offer these programs and also to, uh, also to have really chosen this particular topic as being one that is really important for um, for us to address. So I want to thank Haley for that as well. So I'm now going to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Haley Dinneman. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner, and thank you to my fellow speakers for your excellent presentations. Today's webinar and teleconference is one of many programs offered by the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation. All our programming is specifically designed to address the needs of the triple negative community, from patients to survivors to caregivers and loved ones. Today I'd like to highlight a few of our offerings, and I sincerely hope that you'll take advantage of them as you navigate from diagnosis through treatment and finally to survivorship. First, we have many educational brochures and fact sheets that are available in print or also as free downloads from our website. Our popular materials were developed with input from members of our TNBC community, as well as esteemed medical experts in the area of TNBC. Like all of our other educational materials, these brochures have special sections addressing issues of particular interest to our TNBC community, including fear of recurrence, of course. Uh, we work hard to make sure that every member of our community can find relevant information and practical guidance in these materials, so I hope you will use them to your benefit. Um, our, newly our newly redesigned website, tnbcfoundation.org, offers two TNBC-specific clinical trials matching services, a constantly updated TNBC news section, and a favorite of our community, which is our online discussion forums. The forums allow you to easily connect with other women who are living with triple negative breast cancer at any time of the day or night. And our community, which includes thousands of women from those who are newly diagnosed to many long-term survivors, use the forums to ask questions about treatment, about how to manage side effects, and anything else related to TNBC. But mostly, um, and most importantly, our discussion forums offer consistent support to our community. If you aren't currently registered for the forums, you should consider joining them, um, and you can even join anonymously if you wish. Of course, if you feel that you would benefit more from in-person meetings, I hope that you'll consider coming to our upcoming fall conference weekend. The TNBC Foundation partners with Living Beyond Breast Cancer every year to provide you with a specific triple negative program. On um, the 2019 conference will take place in Philadelphia from September 20th to the 21st, and it will include important educational offerings and opportunities to socialize with our incredible TNBC community. Um, registration will open on July 8th, and we will provide you with the links from our website and social media accounts. If you follow us on Facebook or visit our website, you'll be able to register not only for the conference, but also for travel grants um, that will help you and your caregivers defray the cost of attending. So I hope to see you all there. We hope to connect with you all soon, whether on social media, by phone, online at tnbcfoundation.org, or live at one of our TNBC Day events um, that take place throughout the year. So once again, thank you for joining us, and now I'll turn the program back to Dr. Messner. 
Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Zinnerman, and thank you so much for your uh, comments and for your um, really support of these programs and for women, uh, for, all, for all people living with triple negative breast cancer, for our uh, helpline as well. So thank you so much. Um, and um, our next speaker is Ms. Lauren Chatelain, and um, Ms. Chatelain will is our women's cancer. She's an oncology social worker, and she's our women's cancer's program coordinator at Cancer Care. And um, Ms. Chatelain will be addressing the uh, the um, triple negative breast cancer. Um, the program for the Triple Negative Breast Cancer, um, the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation's helpline, as well as review of the free psychosocial services authored by the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Helpline. So it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Chatelaine. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. I'm very happy to be a part of this program today. As Dr. Mesner mentioned, I'm an oncology social worker at Cancer Care, as well as Cancer Care's Women's Cancers Program Coordinator. I provide cancer-focused support to those diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer and their families throughout their experience from diagnosis through treatment and post-treatment as well. In the next couple minutes, I'm going to share how the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation Helpline and Cancer Care can be a part of your support system. The Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation and Cancer Care have partnered together to ensure that those diagnosed with TNBC have access to free psychosocial services and support. The Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation Helpline, which is generously funded by the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, provides callers with access to comprehensive services. These services include one-on-one short-term cancer-focused counseling offered in person in the New York City area, as well as nationally over the telephone. Additional services include support groups, TNBC and clinical trial education, and reading materials, as well as limited financial assistance. By calling the helpline, individuals are connected with an oncology social worker trained in the physical, emotional, and practical challenges of a TNBC diagnosis. Our professional licensed oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis impacts an individual as well as their loved ones. We are aware of the financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and psychological effects that TMBC can have on an individual. Adjusting to and finding new ways of coping with this diagnosis can be an important part of your healing process. Individual counseling can offer a space to express your feelings, emotions, and concerns one-on-one with an oncology social worker. A social worker can offer support and guidance as well as help navigate difficult decision-making or communication with loved ones, among other challenges specific to your diagnosis through treatment as well as post-treatment. You and your social worker can discuss what led you to the triple negative breast cancer foundation and explore the ways in which we can offer support. Joining a support group can be a way of connecting with others who may have a better understanding of what you have experienced and continue to experience. Finding support through other individuals during this challenging time can be very helpful. At this time, Cancer Care offers TNBC-specific online support groups, and there are also active forums on the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation's website, as Ms. Dinnerman mentioned. If you are interested in learning more about the support services we offer, I encourage you to call the TNBC helpline at 877-880-8622. Our social workers can help you understand what this phase may mean for you and your loved ones. We are here to offer you support and look forward to hearing from you. It has been such a pleasure to be a part of this very informative program. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to speak today. Oh, thank you so much. That was wonderful and, and so informative. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Well, um, we now do have time for questions. And I'm going to ask Norma to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. So, um, uh, uh, Norma, if you would explain to everyone um, what they need to do to ask a question. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one, on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, to ask a question, please press star, then one. 
So we have a question for one of our online participants, um, and that question is for um, actually Dr. Rowland and for Dr. Hurley. Um, so do you think this this fear of recurrence is fear of death? If someone faced that fear, would it be less? Dr. Rowland, do you want to address that to begin with? So the question is, if if you were to face that fear, in part, that was Dr. What Dr. Hurley was talking about is w- when we fear recurrence, there is a deeper question that's actually we're asking ourselves, and that is, what is it we're most worried about? Are we worried about dying? Are we worried about not being here, not being able to do the things that we hoped? Are we worried about the process, what might happen should the disease come back or progress? What will happen to us? There are many levels to this, and part of it's kind of thinking for yourself, or if you have access, talking to having someone help you talk through this. As Dr. Hurley said, you know, having a friend you might just have that dialogue with, no judgment entailed to say what is it you really are worrying about, and if you know that, it's sometimes easier to cope with that. Mhm. That's beautifully said and the only thing that that I'll I'll add is, you know, uh dealing with these questions of mortality and uncertainty. If we step outside of cancer for a moment, these are questions that are thousands of years old. You know, every religion, every culture uh struggles to find a way to live uh, with these uh, twin realities of our existence. And so, um, you know, the, that can also o- offer other avenues to uh, working with fear of recurrence to think of it in the larger context of, of human struggle. Thank you. That's a, that's a very important question. And um, and if we could, Dr. Curley, her, um, uh, Dr. Hurley, that you could recommend that people kind of use to kind of deal with those fears or to kind of um, address them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, you know, there were the uh, the two sort of uh, uh, quick techniques um, that I mentioned, the uh, color spot meditation and uh, refocusing. Um, people can also, um, I'm also, uh, uh, you know, people can use um, positive self-coaching, finding a coping statement that you can turn to when you're having your fear. One of the most famous coping statements is one day at a time. Um, and it's so familiar that somehow it, you know, it may, uh, you know, we forget about its power to bring us back into the present. Other coping statements might be, I'm in good hands, so that you feel like no matter what happens, that you can, um, you have people and resources to turn to. Um, another might be, I'm doing um, my best to protect my health, so that you're reminding yourself of where you do have agency and control. Excellent. Thank you. And Ms. Shetlin, could you comment on just the role of support groups sometimes in helping people to, oh, you know, to to share concerns and, and worries with each other? So, Lauren, if you could comment on some of the values of support groups for Oh, yes. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, of course. Um, so our support groups um, offer, you know, a wonderful safe space to be able to, you know, connect with one another, um, you know, hear what others may be doing to, um, to cope through their diagnosis and, um, you know, what has worked for them, offer suggestions and support. It's also very reassuring to hear that others may be experiencing, um, you know, similar um, similar things that you may be facing every day, and and just to know that you know you're not alone. There there is a community there. There are other people there to be able to connect to. Um, it, you know, it can it can be a wonderful and helpful experience for so many people. I think we we find that all the time. Well, thank you. And um, so another question for our online participants. Um, so regarding mind-body techniques, um, are there any groups that provide services specifically for those with cancer or survivors? Do you have a list of resources? So, um, uh, Dr. Hurley, could you kind of comment on that just in terms of um, how um, uh, participants might um, access these uh, mind-body techniques in terms of 
getting sort of access to a practitioner who could help them with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, a lot of uh, larger hospitals uh, these days will have uh, some version of a um, you know uh, integrative medicine um, that where uh, people can uh, connect with uh, more holistic practitioners you know who might do um, hands-on body technique or uh, yoga or offer yoga or meditation. Um, also. Uh, uh, you know, looking for uh, freestanding cancer uh, organizations in your community here in Cleveland. Um, there's a, a, a local center uh, called the Gathering Place that offers um, classes and workshops and uh, one-on-one individual sessions. Um, there are other uh, national organizations that uh, also connect people to services. So. Um, you know, really making the transition from online to uh, in-person, uh, you know, can take a little bit of um, searching. But, uh, you know, going back, you know, asking uh, at, at the local level, where can you connect with um, with people is, is a good thing. The other thing is, is thinking about um, finding uh, uh, videos and uh, podcasts and things that lead in particular techniques. There are lots and lots of apps out there for uh, guided meditations and visualizations that people also may find helpful. Yeah, and this is Julia Roland. I just want to add on to what Dr. Hurley says. I think starting local is a great idea. So going back to where you were treated, see if they have any integrative medicine programs housed within that uh, complex or that facility, and or if they don't, do they I'd refer people to neighborhood networks? It's another role that support groups can play. Often the members have tried to look for programs for themselves or been using mm-hmm. other centers that have services available that are tailored to the needs of people who've had cancer. So those are great places. So, so my organization, for example, Smith Center for Healing in the Arts, is a standalone program in Washington, D.C. We do exactly that. And we also know who's in our broader community. So when you find one resource, they may also be able to tell you who might be a few miles away if that's more convenient for you. So don't hesitate to ask. And, of course, we have the you know World Wide Web now. Google, just Google a search in there. You more than likely to come up with lots of resources to, to, for you to think about and pursue. Well, that's an excellent point. And, and um, Lauren, do you want to say, uh, Michelle, do you want to say something about just the resources that can't We actually have a meditation app here, but do you want to comment on that as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we do have our own uh, meditation app, um, which you know can be very helpful. There are different um, sections depending on what you may be looking for. Um, we do have, you know, we offer several resources um, by calling the um, triple negative breast cancer. Um, helpline and speaking with one of our oncology social workers, you're able to, um, you know, ask if if they can help you to connect with local resources. We're able to search, um, you know, in the area. We, you know, try to give you as many um, resources we possibly could, depending on what you may be looking for. And we definitely offer different recommendations and suggestions and being able to connect with, um, with others. Um, and hello. Um, and so, and then we also um, uh, um, so another question from one of our um, participants um, who has a young child and is concerned about just um, dealing with her own concerns and um, and worry about her daughters. And so, um, Dr. Hilly, could you comment on that? Uh, sure. This is a really uh, a common uh, concern, and so there, there's two things I would say. Uh, number one, um, uh, you know, there's that uh, uh, saying when you're uh, on an airplane and they do the demonstration about putting your own mask on first before helping uh, someone else in case of an emergency. So um, making sure that you have good adult support uh for your feelings and you're starting to process that a little bit um, can help you be open and available to your child's concerns, which may be somewhat different. Um, There's a really uh, wonderful website that was put together by uh, uh, Massachusetts General Hospital um, 
called Parenting at a Challenging Time, P-A-C-T, and they, uh, that offers a lot of detailed uh, uh, information and suggestions about uh, how to uh, talk with children about cancer, and, and it's broken down by age so that you can really do it, um, you know, something that's uh, help find the words that are appropriate for a particular age and to kind of titrate uh, to their concerns. And I would say that's a really important point. Uh, developmentally, it, it also depends very much on the age of your child, uh, how you want to approach this. And an important factor, as, as Dr. Hurley said, you definitely want to take care of yourself first. And you're not going to share more information with your child than you already have and or make them promises because one thing we're very mindful of as parents all the time is that we want to be very honest with our children so that they trust us. You don't want to mm -hmm. tell them something and then have that not be true because that relationship is, is very important. Um, so going back to your pediatrician is also another good resource to say, here's what's going on at home, what might be tips for me or guidelines or how might I manage this. One um, Certainly one often used way to monitor how well a child is adapting is how they're doing in school because that's their workplace. And if uh, the teachers report that this child is doing fine uh, and their behavior has not changed subsequently from your perspective, then it sounds like things are going well. Excellent. And Ms. Schussman, do you want to comment on that as well in terms of our children's program? Yeah, absolutely. So I am also um, one of our social workers that um, is involved in our Cancer Care for Kids program. So we also offer support to children um, when, you know, parents have been diagnosed. We offer support in, in our local offices. Um, we're also, you know, offering the telephone counseling nationally to, um, you know, those over 18, but it would be also if a parent is looking for tips or techniques and being able to navigate some of these questions. Um, I completely agree with, you know, what our other experts had mentioned. Um, it definitely depends on, on age and, you know, um, development and um, and you know what the child may already know I think a lot of callers um, sh you know share that they're not sure it, what they should tell their child how they should tell their child what they should know and we can definitely help to kind of navigate um, you know those decisions we also have some great publications um, I really enjoy one of our booklets and it kind of shows um, through each age what may be helpful um, in discussing with, with your child. Excellent. Um, well, I want to thank our speakers. This has been a phenomenal call. Um, I just, I, we could actually spend the rest of the, actually probably another hour or two on the call because there are so many um, more questions. But I want to thank all of our speakers. You've been phenomenal. I want to thank our participants as well because um, you've asked such great questions online. and. Um, I also um, want to recognize that there's still some questions in queue, so we want to kind of address um, how to get those questions answered. So the first thing we always recommend is, of course, that you go back to your treating healthcare team. Of course, they know the most about you, and they actually, um, you know, they really, um, they just know a great deal about you. And so they, and also your healthcare team in all of your institutions often includes the multidisciplinary team of people. So it includes your oncologist. Um, but it also includes an oncology nurse, oncology social workers, psychologists, um, a child life specialist, a whole group of people who can be helpful to you in in uh, in, in coping with um, your, your concerns that you have. And in this instance, more is okay. So it does not mean that you just have to stay with just asking one person the question. You can see who else on the team could be helpful to you. You also can reach out to some of the organizations that we've mentioned today, and you're all going to get an evaluation at the end of today's call. And in the evaluation, you will receive, um, actually in the evaluation, you'll receive um, all the resources that were mentioned today and some additional ones as well. So you'll have um, a cornucopia of resources to go to and, uh, and to, and to um, follow up with in terms of help that you can be getting. Um, and, um, of course, um, uh, I think a, go, a good go-to line to go to just because it's a, um, a number that's available nationally to everybody on the call is the, uh, the triple negative um, Breast Cancer Foundation helpline, 1-877-880-8622. Um, and they also have a website, tnbcfoundation.org 
backslash helpline, and you'll be getting all of that as well as a resource um, to, to go to. It is staffed by oncology social workers, and they know lots of resources to help you and, and materials to send you booklets, all sorts of things that would be helpful. And also, I just want to say there is a part three to this program. So uh, part three is actually um, for coping with the stresses of caregiving when your loved one has triple negative breast cancer. And everyone on the call is welcome to listen to that, as well as inviting caregivers um, who actually may be in their lives as well. Some of you may be your own caregiver or feel like your own caregiver. Some of you may have someone who is significant and is helpful to you who might want to listen to the call as well. Um, and... Um, most importantly, as we conclude today's program, we would not want any one of you to feel alone. We want you to know that you're now part of a community of support, and we are here to help you, um, and, um, and there are resources for you. And the feelings that you have are normal feelings. We want to make that very clear to all of you. These are n normal feelings that people have, and that there's a lot of support that, that you can have um, to cope with them. There's a lot of, we've made some suggestions today, um, but there are many uh, other suggestions that can be made as you talk with um, other staff um, at your institution or as you follow up with um, any of the resources that we provide for you. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.